Today's reading is Acts chapter 26, verses 25 to 29. It can be found on page 1032 of the Bible's next year seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God, not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The word of God. Thanks be to God. Mm. Thanks, Mark. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, um, we, we listen to these words. We come from different places. I, I don't assume I know everyone's story in this place. And um, some of us feel you know, very new to the idea of exploring the Christian faith. Um, we might be trying to figure out, are we a Christian? Is that even what we would say about ourselves yet? We, we might be disinterested to some degree, or we might be looking on from the outside. And, and yet there's others of us um, who sit here this morning and maybe the it's, it's been a lifetime of knowing you or knowing a gracious God. Maybe it's been a, a journey that includes some good times right now and some gratitude for your clear hand in our lives and others, almost the opposite, maybe having known you and been excited about you at one time, now feeling rejected or, or abandoned, quite frankly, by you as we feel differently now and as it just doesn't quite seem the same. Maybe the spark feels missing and we wonder if we were fooling ourselves to have believed when we were young. From all these places, whether hurt or happiness, we sit as a mess, more, of, more failure than we want people to know, more fragmentation in our lives than we even want to admit ourselves. And your grace comes to us in those kind of places. So I pray that this morning we would be able to see our need for you, our fragility before you, and know that in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined, despite our, our inability to have perfect devotion, our inability to climb our way to you. You've come down to us, and you've sent your spirit to make faith even possible. Help us to believe we're here for a reason and your spirit is a part of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I didn't have a new contemporary movie to refer to as I opened up this sermon. So I go back a little bit, reaching into the year 2000, The Big Kahuna. (laughs) This is a movie that some of you, some of you were probably in early grade school when this movie came out. But The Big Kahuna has some big name actors like Danny DeVito and, and Kevin Spacey. Um, and this, so there's this classic final scene. I'll read you some, some quotes from it. And it's Danny DeVito's just perfect acting, just his, his 
just so solid in delivering these lines. But what's basically happened to set the stage in much too skeleton of a way is they, these three guys are in a hospitality suite of a hotel at a conference related to, to mechanics, and they, and they sell lubricants. And they're hoping to land the big kahuna. They're hoping to have that one interaction with that guy of this one particular business, and they want to run into him, and they want to pitch, and they want, to, they want their business to get kind of saved because of the big kahuna. And it turns out at the end they find out they had thought they had never run into him. It turns out the young rookie salesman had, had actually spent a couple hours with him, and the guy was wearing a different name tag. And it turns out the rookie salesman decided to use that time to try to, instead of selling lubricants, he tried to pitch Jesus to the big kahuna. So this is Danny DeVito responding. He says, he says, Bob, he says, you're an honest man, Bob. I believe that. But somewhere down deep inside is something that strives to be honest. The question you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of my life? The young salesman asks, what does that mean? Danny DeVito's character goes on. He says, that means that you preaching Jesus is no different than Larry or anybody else preaching lubricants. It doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to somebody honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are just to find out for no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it isn't a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. Isn't that good? Ugh. The question of the week, the question of the week was, um, what's the most powerful way to persuade someone? And I've never, I've never seen so many answers uh, to the question of the week. We've got nine different answers on here. Some people gave like three answers. Um, get some of the humorous ones out of the way first. Somebody said, uh, isolate them from contrary opinions while repeatedly stating your opinion is fact. And then, in, I mean, the real humor here is in the parentheses behind it. It says, Fox News, MSNBC. <laughs> I'm just reporting it, okay? I'm not being partisan up here. And then somebody says, well, there are a few ways, powerful ways to persuade someone. Gather them together, convince the mob. And secondly, persuade them emotionally, or the most powerful way, let James Frazee speak to them. That works every time. <laughs> Sorry if you're out of the loop on what that means, but James Frazee is a, a beloved member of City Life Church. He's not here this morning. I wish I'm going to have to send him the podcast of this message so he can hear that. I, lo I love the simplicity of this answer. What's the most powerful way to persuade someone? Someone says, truth plus time. That's... Someone else contrasts the difference between your actions, which are powerful, and shouting, which is not. Just confident actions. That's how you persuade someone. And in line with that, someone says, authenticity persuades. Someone else gave sort of a, a threefold answer saying, first, you, you know, talk to someone if they're willing to be persuaded. Or 
Be Socratic. Ask questions. Ask leading questions that cause the person to come to your conclusion. And then third, be compassionate. Show the person that you care. Goes a little bit back to the big kahuna monologue. And we're talking about persuasion because if you look at this passage, I'm glad that we zeroed in and just read a few verses because this is actually one of those kind of places in Scripture where you almost have to read about three or four chapters to understand what on earth is going on. But we're going to intentionally kind of say, we're not going to do this big old lesson on what's been going on for three chapters. We're going to zero in on where we find ourselves here. And there's this great question that um, I think there was some laugh. There was, there was beautiful, genuine laughter as the Scripture was read. I love that. Because you know, I get to the point where I've read this thing a you know, hundred times leading up to Sunday and I'm not realizing how it sounds the first time you hear it. And basically, King Agrippa says, as he feels a little bit of pressure from Paul, he says, um, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? We're on the topic of persuasion. And what King Agrippa does here, one commentator um, says this about what he does. He says that what King Agrippa is doing as he responds to Paul is the tone, it's the tone, the tone is sophisticated avoidance by a slightly embarrassed king. Sophisticated avoidance. Does that ring a bell a little bit for you if you're a Christian? Do you think of anyone in particular in your life um, who you've seen? And you see this in a myriad of ways, but maybe you see in the context of a conversation with you Related to faith, do you see the sophisticated avoidance? Apparently, it's growing. I've been paying attention to this Pew Research study that says that we are just increasingly becoming, as a culture, less and less affiliated with religion and the Christian faith. So some of the stats on that are just very interesting, how quickly it's happened from the year 2007, sort of the first data point, to 2014. And so we've gone uh, religiously, overall, the religiously unaffiliated number of 56 million um, represents 23% of adults. In 2007, it was 36 million, representing 16%. Another way to say it, there's a bunch of different ways that you could cut, kind of cut through the data. Um, one of the things that was quoted is this, uh, nearly a quarter of the people who are raised as Christian have left the group. And then another way it was said is that in 2007, there were 79% of the people in our country, adults, affiliated as Christian, and, and now it's 71%. So a, a steep drop of 8% in seven years. And you know what's interesting is that's the exact lifespan so far since 2007 of City Life Church. So I find that to be interesting. Also, I think the numbers w- would be way higher of religious unaffiliation if we didn't exist. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. Um, just imagine the huge numbers that that study would have if City Life hadn't been active for seven years. Um, I don't know what you think about this data. I think some people are alarmed. Maybe some people are ex- glad about it. I mean, I know some people are glad about it. Is this a problem? Should we be concerned? Are we failing? 
in my opinion, we've got some of the best people on the case as well. We've got some of the best, most notable spokespeople out there working on this cause. I'm, I pay attention to the NBA basketball, and the last two years, here's the beginning of the MVP speeches. So you've got Kevin Durant last year. He's, he's declared the MVP. All the news cameras are on. His whole team's there. Everybody's watching. It's all over the news. People are going to be emailing it and sending it out the next morning. This is, how, this is how Kevin Durant last year starts. He says, first off, I'd like to thank God for changing my life. It let me realize what life is all about. Basketball is just a platform in order to, for me to inspire people, and I realize that. Global icon, Kevin Durant, known throughout the world. This year's MVP, Steph Curry, walks up to the microphone, accepts his MVP speech. You guys saw him score 40 points last night. Hopefully, hopefully you're paying attention to the Golden State Warriors a little bit. This is his first words out of his mouth, the MVP speech. First and foremost, I have to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for blessing me with the talents to play this game, with a family that supports me, uh, that supports me day in and day out. I'm his humble servant right now. I can't say it enough how important my faith is to how I play the game and who I am. So I'm just blessed and I'm thankful for where I am. We've got our best people on the case. (laughs) And the numbers are going down. Is this a problem? I don't know what you think. Thanks, Mark. Let me pray a minute. God of grace, um, City Life Church exists for this city, and um, and um, maybe some of us here, maybe some of us here know your child, this young gal that came in, and and probably most of us don't, but you know her and you know her story. And our hearts hurt for the brokenness of all your children, your daughters and your sons. I pray that you walk with her. I pray that you, um, that you would right wrongs in her life if that is possible at all. And we know that it is through your Holy Spirit. And we pray that she may hear some gentle words out on the sidewalk, some love, and she may know somewhere deep inside amidst the chaos that your grace and your love exists for her and that you're looking out for her and you're watching over her life. Help us as a church to be postured to love people just like her. May we not fail to see you in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Let's transition back into this story. So all kidding aside, the Apostle Paul is unsuccessfully persuading this king. He's unsuccessful, apparently. And one of the commentators named Ben Witherington III, as he talks about what's going on in the bigger picture of Luke-Acts, it's a two-book book, it's, they're, they're joined together. And he, he describes it this way, he says... 
that the majority does not respond positively is a theme throughout Luke-Acts and is full of irony and pathos. He's basically saying this is a key thread of this story, is that as the message of Jesus moves forward, there's these sort of glazed-over responses from the world around them, this sophisticated avoidance. The majority does not respond positively. Even in this book that we look at and we say, Wow, the exciting early church. <laughs> well, if you've been in church a long time, you've heard, you've heard people talk that way. Wow, to be in the presence of the Spirit's work here. The majority does not respond positively. And that is a truth. Even in the book of Acts, as the church was exploding onto the scene. And give thought to that. Give thought to, you know, why are you here? <laughs> as the majority in our culture, does not respond positively. Why are you here? What's happened? Did something happen along the way? Was there, were there points of persuasion? What persuaded you? Was it a person? Was it a, a tangible event? Was it a rock-bottom experience? Was it some logic from a friend? Was it, what was it? Were you persuaded at some point to pay attention to God, to give it a chance, to consider even thinking about what it means to be called a Christian? I love what Paul does here because I, I think it would be easy to read this story. And what has just happened is Paul has entered into a speech telling the story of the Christian faith. And he's got a good audience. He's got King Agrippa and um, Festus. This would be the equivalent, if you know the gospel stories well, of Jesus' crucifixion. This would be the equivalent of Herod and Pontius Pilate. There was an interaction between them you can read about in the gospels where they send Jesus back and forth and then they be and sort of out of common mockery of Jesus, they become friends, and they hadn't been friends before. Herod, Pontius Pilate. Same positions, the regional king, Agrippa, and in Jerusalem stationed is Festus, who's just taken over from Felix, and so this is a visit from the regional king to celebrate this new transition of leadership. And in this moment, Festus says, I've got this difficult case, I don't understand it, I've got to send Paul on to Caesar, who was Nero at the time, but I don't, have, I don't know what to write about it. I don't know what to say. I don't understand the issues at hand. The Jews are accusing him of things. It doesn't make any sense to me. Kind of local, regional, religious issues that I don't, I don't understand. Um, help me figure this out. So they call Paul forward. He gives a speech. What's important to notice is that Paul isn't just utilizing one situation to turn it towards a different thing. He's not, you know, it's not like, like Paul's standing before a judge to get a parking ticket and he's trying to convert the judge to go to his church. And everybody's like, no, 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 this is about a parking ticket. Just shut up and, you know. It's, it's not like the big kahuna moment where the salesman tries to turn. It's actually, they want to know. The, the whole thing is like, clear, this, clear up this murky religious controversy that's actually an issue. Everywhere there are Jews and Romans, there's, there's these conflicts and we want to understand them. And it's growing because the conflict of Jew, the, the Jesus bit is like really drawing controversy within these Jewish communities in different cities like Caesarea and Jerusalem. They, the leaders who have more of a Roman background, they want to figure this out. So he's not, you know, he's not just trying to shove a pill down their throat. He's actually, and, and what he does as he has a chance to speak and talk about his religion and why this controversy has happened, he actually begins and uses a format that would have been like the first century Near Eastern version of a TED Talk. He uses a recognizable speech pattern of his day. 
And he follows that kind of recognized pattern of persuasion as he tells his, and he ends up doing a very TED Talk-like thing, and he injects his own story into it, right, to bring even more of that persuasive, you know, I've been persuaded, I've switched paths. But they want to know. I mean, they honestly want to know, and they want to hear about what this is all about. And so as he does this, his thesis, his big idea is basically this. The public controversy that's happening in the Jewish communities, the public controversy of Jesus has actually already been explained clearly through the historic, authoritative scriptures of the Jewish people. He's trying to make a reasonable argument and say, basically, Jesus, as the suffering Messiah, kind of makes sense. If you know the prophets, if you know the scriptures, and I can tell you about that. And you sense in his day, just as you sense it in, in our day, you feel and you get the particular response of just the cultural sneer <laughs> in response. And what does, uh, what does Festus say? I mean, Festus is the one in the room who's really unschooled on the Jewish things and on who Jesus is. I mean, he just flat out says it. You are out of your mind, Paul. <laughs> your great learning is driving you insane. And those are the words before... Um, the reading that we started today. That's exactly what he accuses them. Paul sees this logic and it's lost on the majority around him. I think we know, I think you know, I know, we know the big kahuna lesson already. We know you can't force someone to think what you think. We, we know... It's not a good idea to trick someone, right? It's not a good idea to strong arm or use strong arm or use guilt or use fear. These things will not work if we're considering how the message of Jesus needs to flow through us. Right around the time when I, we were starting City Life Church in 2007, a writer for the uh, Sacramento News and Review, Becca Costello wrote a little piece about her recent experience going to the Crest Theater to see an art show. It involved music, different bands, different spoken word, and then um, and the artist David uh, Garibaldi um, doing one of his you know, dancing art kind of pieces, which you've probably seen. But then she said, she, her, her, her point of her article moves towards this. I'll just, I'll just move right into it because she says she's sitting there and after all the art and all the stuff is done, then... Um, the pastor comes out. She says, the pastor led, led the audience in a prayer for salvation. She says, feeling de deeply uncomfortable, but hoping to salvage what previously had been a fun evening, <laughs> I joined in asking for Jesus' love. She said, then the pastor uttered the line, thank you for dying on the cross in my place, and I choked. I couldn't say those words with feeling, and I felt angry at being put in such a position. Motivation is one thing. A conversion ambush is quite another. If these talented performers at that night's show hope to reach a global audience with their gifts, they'll have to learn the difference. And I, and I have to say, in a sense, well said. Even in the book of Acts, the attraction of the Christian message seems lost on the majority. Jesus, though, we are shown, is not slowed down. 
And part of that, I think, part of the reason why is I think of the central vehicle of persuasion that exists in the movement of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And that is communities of selfless grace. I think that's the strongest argument for the Christian faith. Generous givers. People who, in the first century, they were looking out for orphans and widows and making sure they were caring for those people, the least of the society. Christians were the ones, as the movement continued, who, who took in the sick of the plagues and cared for them at risk of getting sick and dying themselves when the rest of the culture was throwing out the sick and leaving them to die. The Christians were the ones who rescued female babies who were rejected when their gender was discovered. And the common practice of infanticide suddenly had a new element, had these rescuers coming because they were Christians. I, I was thinking this week about just honestly, if I think about it, what would persuade me most? If I, if, if I needed to be persuaded, if I was going to be persuaded, what would actually persuade me? And I thought, you know, I think it would happen in relationship with someone who was serving my best interests over a long period of time. I think that would be the most persuasive kind of person that, could, that I would listen to. And then I would think, well, if that person says this way is good, I think I should consider that. Like a legacy of serving my best interests. And quite frankly, that's I think what, the, what a, a community like ours, that's the kind of legacy we can write. That's the kind of legacy we can create. As the, as the um, quote from Leslie Newbegin in the worship guide says, how is it possible for the gospel, that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has has the last word in human affairs, is represented by a man hanging on the cross, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. In the end, I think that's the most reasonable and persuasive argument. I want to read one other thing, if I can find it. There it is. The question of the week several weeks ago was, do you have an example of a family whose behavior caught your attention? And I want to close with this answer that someone gave. When I was a stay-at-home mom, I had, I had a friend who was doing the same. Anytime I would show up at her house, she was always ready with coffee or lemonade, with homemade cookies or something. She was also a real believing Catholic, while I was at most agnostic. She talked about God and Jesus so happily and in such a funny, friendly way that she gradually gave me a real hunger for faith. She had a big, close family, too, when my marriage was deteriorating. The best thing she gave to me, in answer to my urgent question, where do you get faith? Um, It's a gift from God. All you have to do is ask him. Let's pray. Our God of grace, you know, some of us may find ourselves in situations where we have faith and, and even if we're the strongest introvert in the world, we might see 
times when it's very clear that it's time to say something about our faith to someone who doesn't share that faith. And we may even knock it out of the park. It may be we just feel really good and we said the right thing and, and that's what you wanted us to do. And we said it in a way that we didn't ruin a friendship. And yet, there's going to be examples where that still we still just don't see any results. And things seem to be going nowhere. It leads us right back to you, the real actor, the, the one who provides the catalyzing presence of your Holy Spirit in relationships and people and in the folks here. You're the one who has brought us all here anyway to start with. May we, as we, whether we serve someone with our hands and with our time or whether we give a good word at the appropriate time, may we be absolutely filled with trust in your activity in this world and in people's lives to bring hope and love and healing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.